Magic Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Diligentia et Divina Sorte. Oracular Intelligence in Marsilio Ficino's Astral Magic. By Angela Voss, Canterbury Christchurch University. Summary. In this chapter, I want to demonstrate how the astral magic of the Florentine philosopher, Marsilio Ficino, 1433-99, in his treatise De Vida Celitas Comparanda of 1489, on aligning your life with the heavens, henceforth De Vita, can be understood as a method for attaining a mode of insight he understood as oracular or prophetic. I suggest that this challenges the supposedly natural remit of his magic through confirming the notic dimension of the human soul as essentially divine, capable of accessing a kind of direct knowing of a radically different order from conceptual or speculative thought. That Ficino himself was fully aware of this possibility through his reading of the Neoplatonic Theurgists is hinted at in this text but he was constrained by Christian doctrine on the dangers of attracting demonic powers. A couple notes. Dr. Voss points out that she's grateful to Georgina Hedison for suggesting the appropriate translation of Aligning. The first two books of the treatise Davida Sana and Davida Longa are devoted to medical and regimen advice for over-intellectual scholars. Also, Dr. Voss's approach is more hermeneutic than historiographical. She says, in that I am particularly interested in how Ficino understood and worked with the powers of imagination and what the Neoplatonic metaphor may reveal about dimensions of human consciousness. While I'm aware of the arguments raised by Walter Hanekraff concerning the contrasting approaches of methodological agnosticism and religionism within historical studies of Western esotericism, See Western Esotericism and the Academy, Cambridge University Press, 2012. I fully support the view of Jeffrey J. Cripple, who calls for a Gnostic scholar who is both passionate and critical, personal and objective, religious and academic, and committed to a methodological approach which integrates criticality and empathy. This is one of the most amazing qualities in Dr. Voss and 
when I was at her, her class in Canterbury uh, presenting the other year, um, I was very struck by this kind of balanced and circumspect approach that she has. She heads a department of myth, cosmology, and the sacred for, for masters and PhD students at Canterbury, and I highly recommend her program if anyone is looking for a, a pathway through academia. Back to her fine essay. We find here an irresolvable conflict between Neoplatonic ritual, which upheld the potential of the imagination as a purposeful agent in directing the soul to divine communion via cosmic intelligence, and the assertions of scholastic Christianity regarding the illegitimacy of pagan practices. However, I conclude that Ficino's assured grasp of the power of astrological invocation as divinatory enabled him to artfully lay the ground in Devita for a process of spiritual illumination that he understood as partaking of a universal religious truth, framed by Christianity, but transcending the arguments of abstract scholastic de debate. Introduction Marsilio Ficino was instrumental in the revival of Platonism in Renaissance Europe, devoting his career to this integration of the ancient theology of the Persian, Egyptian, and Greek pagan sages into Christianity. Note by pay-ancient theology, Ficino meant a succession of pagan sages from Zoroaster, or Hermes Trismegistus, to Plato, who transmitted a perennial wisdom which Ficino understood himself as reviving. For details, uh, see uh, Ficino prefaced to his translation of the Corpus Hermeticum in Opera, 1386, translated by Brian Copenhaver, Hermetica. His innovative vision was aimed at rekindling the flame of a living engagement with the sacred, which was both dynamic and transformative, in order to deepen faith with philosophical understanding. Following the examples of Pythagoras, Socrates, and Christ, he combined action and contemplation in a life of service to both physical and spiritual well-being, his ecclesiastic career enabling him to sanctify the philosophy of the ancient pagan theologians while still confirming the supremacy of the established faith. Pacino was, of course, a Catholic priest. And in his treatise De Christiana Religione, Ficino laments the profanity of his age and states his mission to liberate philosophy from impiety and to redeem holy religion. Quote, he said, I therefore exhort and implore all philosophers to reach out and embrace religion firmly, and all priests to devote themselves diligently to the study of legitimate religion. Ficino tells us in the Prom to his three books on life that he had two fathers, his natural father, a physician, and his patron, Cosmo de' Medici. At the same time, Ficino was also a practicing physician, astrologer, musician, and magician, and all of these activities contributed to his natural magic, a form of healing which was firmly situated within Neoplatonic cosmology and ritual, and which drew on the powers of the active imagination for its effects. I wonder if anyone here can relate to those ideas and qualities. Musician, physician, magician, astrologer. Sounds like one of uh, the typical polymaths that we see in the spiritual scene developing today. All we need is to keep going, eh? We just need to keep learning and studying and taking our lives seriously, yet with grace and humor. 
I know this is going to be a different sort of essay, but I blame that partly on Dr. Voss's very much needed style and perspective on the study of academic knowledge in a comprehensive human way. One could say that Ficino's mission was founded on his desire to infuse an exoteric framework of Christian spiritual values with a deep understanding of the necessity for individual visionary inner work in order to heal a perceived dissociation between the rational and imaginative powers of the mind. Diligentia et divina sorte. There has been considerable scholarly interest in divita, but to my knowledge, no one has focused on the hermeneutic implications of a specific phrase he uses in chapter 21, where he addresses the improvisation of composition of suitable music for attracting propitious stellar influences. And let's keep in mind that hermeneutic has to do with the mode of interpretation in time, place, context for our time, place, context. It's a fusing of horizons rather than a scrying of the inner meaning of what someone really truly meant. That would be a Schleiermachian interpretation of hermeneutics as opposed to the prevalent and revised modern Gadamerian style. Quote, it is indeed very difficult to judge exactly what kinds of tones, modes, tony, are suitable for what sorts of stars, says Ficino, or indeed what combination of tones, modes, especially accord with what sorts of constellations and aspects. But we can attain this, partly through our own efforts, diligentia nostra, partly by some divine oracle, divina quadum sorte. The word sores was used in classical sources chiefly for the practice of divination by lot, as for example in the ancient Roman custom of drawing Homeric verses from a pot to determine a course of action, implying that we, what we call chance, was in fact an opportunity for the gods to give divine guidance. Something of interest, I think, to anyone into geomancy or tarot cards out there. See Cicero on divination, on different ways of divining by lot. Generally speaking, chance is envisioned as the working of some impartial power which makes dice fall in a specific way, or an odd or even number of pebbles jumping out of a buffalo horn, or a specific individual drawing a certain lot. These may be ways of revealing divine will or simply of ensuring fairness. Also, fun note there, when I refer to Cicero on divination, we're not referring to the modern GD author, Chick Cicero, in this case. Uh, but sores could also refer to the verbal response of an oracle, and this seems to be what Ficino has in his mind in De Vita, in which his primary concern is to attract the gifts of higher, ostensibly cosmic powers to the human soul. Ficino's use of sores here suggests that he is thinking of his astral music as a divinatory procedure, in which human diligentia prepares the ground for a numinous response. Indeed, in confirmation that the divine elaborates in the healing process, he defers to late antique magi Apollonius of Tyana, circa 15 to circa 100 CE, and Iamblichus, 245 to 325 CE, who testifies that all medicine had its origin in inspired prophecy, because Apollo was father of both arts. 
This statement has far-reaching implications in relation to the supposedly natural remit of Ficino's magic, as we shall see. Natural or Spiritual Magic But how do the higher powers reveal their oracular message? Note, in De Vita 23-25, Ficino insists that his natural magic only engages celestial or daemonic rather than super-celestial powers, quote, and so let no one think that any divinities wholly separate from matter are being attracted by any given mundane materials, but that daemons, rather, are being attracted in gifts from the ensouled world from the living stars. Although he is clearly attracted by Iamblichus's and Proclus's appeal to forces, quote, which are not only celestial but even demonic and divine, he attempts to subdue any scholastic concern about demones as deceitful spiritual intelligences by stating that some regard the spirits of the stars as wonderful celestial forces, while others regard them as demons attendant upon this or that star. Vicino implies that the divine direction is experienced as a spontaneous intuitive inspiration that appears to be other than human, yet finds a channel through the soul of the performer. As he describes in his Letter on Divine Frenzy to Peregrino Agli, according to Plato, both poetry and prophecy arise through this altered state of consciousness where the soul is moved by divine rapture to prophetic utterance. Now, in Ficino's essay on divine frenzy and his understanding of prophecy, there's a good note here that Ficino finds consistency in both Platonic and Christian views that foreknowledge of the future is in the mind of God alone, and that the prophet, as God's tongue, may not know the import of what they utter. However, he adds an intriguing comment that men can perceive the future through divination, which is a property of the senses and imagination rather than of the mind and reason. The more you learn about Ficino, the more interesting and perhaps contemporary at times he even seems. It's a really wonderful thing. And Dr. Voss's book on Ficino, Marcelo Ficino, is, is highly recommended. I often think also of the way that these folks had to get around religion and society and culture of their time. Isn't that dissimilar to how spiritual life today has to get around science uh, to an extent, of course, and religion and culture of our time. It's, it's, we're both struggling with different power structures that would in some ways hinder what we find fulfilling or adventurous or experimental in exploring what we do not know in the world. Also, um, like many good scholars, half this essay is footnotes, and so I've gone through on the second reading to look at the ones that seem most significant, and there are quite a few, so bear with me. Natural, in a theological sense, would be understood to refer to the created order below the prima mobile of the Aristotelian cosmology, and to the powers of the created world and the human being, as opposed to the supernatural powers of God and the angels, who were located beyond any human intelligence, and whose essence constituted a mystery. See Thomas Aquinas, Summa Theologica, on natural law. We must also note that divination through inspiration or dreams was regarded as natural, in that it did not rely on artificial apparatus or deliberate induction, such as in divination through entrails, birds, or lots. This term in no way denied 
the supernatural provenance of the revelation. See Plato, Phaedrus. So it thus appears to contact a creative intelligence, a matter which calls into question the scholastic distinction between natural and supernatural realms of magical operation. This is a question that is never satisfactorily resolved in De Vita. Indeed, perhaps it cannot be resolved because of the fundamental ambiguity in Platonism concerning the ontological status of this other voice, to which I will return. And that's something actually I addressed in my, my, my main work. But firstly, we must situate Ficino's oracle within the metaphysical context in with which he opens in De Vita, the Platinian tripartite cosmos. In chapter 1 of De Vita, Ficino sets the scene by evoking the power of the anima mundi, the world soul, which mediates between the divine ideas and matter, conveying qualities from the ideas to material forms by way of seminal reasons, rationes seminales, by which species are fashioned. This poetic vision is typical of Ficino, its tone in stark contrast to the logical reasoning of scholastic theology. In the Neoplatonic scheme of creation, all things conform through their ratio, which can be described as an occult property to an idea. And this identification can be intensified by the natural magician working with a knowledge of sympathy and correspondence. And a note on Devita here. Plotinus describes the logoi spermaticoi seminal reasons as the productive powers or essences of the world soul produced by noose or divine intelligence see the enneads for an overview of medieval and renaissance cosmology see edward grant grant planet stars and orbs the medieval cosmos 1200 to 1687 remembering their worldview and not us uh, taking it and superimposing it into ours is, is is crucial to what's called the hermeneutic project of interpretation most importantly, the stars, planets, and their various configurations flourish in the world soul, and on these well-ordered forms, the forms of lower things depend. Aquibus formis ordinatissimus dependent inferiorum formae. Celestial forms, i.e. planetary and stellar patterns, in turn refer back to the ideas, being images, brought forth by the soul of intellectual properties, and ultimately they return to the unity of the one and good, unum atque bonum, the ground of all being. Plotinus explains that the soul of the human being, made from the same stuff as the soul of the world, resonates with or comprehends the ideas as images through its corresponding faculty of intellectual imagination, which is distinct from the phantasia in the lower part of the soul. Just as these images point back to their source, so the human imagination can follow through the act of symbolizing, that is, engaging with the images mirrored in the lower soul and bringing them into single focus with the intellectual properties of the higher. In Neoplatonic hermeneutics, this constitutes an active process which will lead the soul back to a condition of unity with itself, the world soul, and ultimately with the one God. This is why Ficino found both astrology and music as archetypal image systems such powerful means of realignment, but he found himself in a difficult position with regard to scholastic Christianity. 
the Neoplatonic understanding that the soul uses its own innate powers, powers which are in fact divine, to achieve a level of consciousness that transcends human reason, and thus may be seen to be prophetic, was not compatible with Christian doctrine on revelation. Hmm. Thomas Aquinas had distinguished between the direct impression on the mind by God from without true prophecy and the kind of foreknowledge that derives from human nature which he would not regard as prophetic. James Hankins has pointed to Ficino's refusal to make this distinction for the Florentine philosopher clearly regards the engagement of the imagination in divinatory acts as facilitating revelation from the divine source. Note that Christian orthodoxy did not acknowledge a higher imaginative faculty of the soul in the Neoplatonic Avicennian sense of partaking of the divine mind, for it understood the imagination as having a corporeal basis not existing outside time. The question of the theological compatibility of scholastic doctrine heavily depended on Aristotle with Neoplatonic theories regarding the nature of the soul and its faculties of perception was the central theme of Ficino's major original work, the Theologia Platonica of 1469-74, in which he set out to achieve a synthesis of philosophy and theology and demonstrate the immortality of the soul. The problem would seem to center on the incompatibility of dual and non-dual conceptions of the cosmos. This is extremely relevant even for us today, if you can think about it clearly. Platonically speaking, divine revelation could be achieved through innate powers of the soul which are themselves divine. Yet as a Christian, Ficino found himself required to honor the distinction between natural and supernatural domains of influence. Obviously, this is a central key point I tackled in my work. The crux lay in the fact that the Neoplatonic natural continuum of psychic energy from the ensouled world to the divine mind, mediated by benevolent intermediate spiritual agencies, the daemones, could not be translated into a Christian model where there was a strict divide between God and nature. This had serious implications as far as magical operations were concerned, because for scholastic Christianity, the natural world was the domain of demonic powers who could be attracted by sympathy through talismanic invocation. Indeed, this was a dangerous aspect of Ficino's ritual practice. He had translated, or rather paraphrased, Iamblichus's On the Mysteries, De Mysteries, shortly before writing the Liber De Vita, and there would have read the theurgic practice of purifying the subtle or astral body, pneuma or alchema, through ritual techniques to the extent that it became divinized, whilst the theurgist was still alive, thus constituting a vehicle for his or her return to the gods. Furthermore, this process would take place through the power of the intermediary daemones, for mortal things obtain divine influences through these daemons. Indeed, the imaginative power of the operator is itself a daemon, and is impressed on the pneuma, accompanying it when it leaves the body. Could we suggest that Ficino's ritual use of astral forces to purify the spiritus of the individual in Divita points directly to this process, which ultimately, theurgically, would lead to the soul's realization of its innate divinity 
In this sense, astrology, music, talismanic image work, and invocation become keys for opening the door, as it were, to a transformation of the soul in which human consciousness shifts its locus from the world of appearance to the intelligible reality of the ideas, via the demonic powers inherent in stars, planets, and audible sound. I would argue that in the phrase diligentia et divina sorte, there is then a subtle implication that Ficino's astrological music is essentially aiming to realign the soul, not only with the cosmos, but with its divine, supercosmic source, through the restoring of the demonic continuum between humans and the one God. And whenever Dr. Voss writes the one, it's the one slash God. If so, then Devita is a remarkable attempt at disguise, carefully cloaking the first steps of such a subversive enterprise in the natural sympathies of the cosmic order. Diligentia, or if you use classical Latin pronunciation, diligentia. I like to mix ecclesiastical and classical, but both are easily learned. Before considering the implications of the divina source in relation to astrology, divination, celestial and supercelestial intelligence, we should briefly discuss what Ficino means by diligentia. In De Vita, chapter 21, Ficino tells us that there are three key factors which promote the efficacy of his astrological song. The inner solar power, or moral excellence, virtus, of the singer, the election of an astrologically propitious time, opportunitas, and desire, or focused intention, intensio. If these are all cultivated, the performer will in some way conceive a music spirit, which will have a healing effect on the listener through sympathetic re resonance. Quote, now song which arises from this power, timeliness and intention is undoubtedly nothing else but another spirit, recently conceived in you in the power of your spirit, a spirit made solar and acting both in you and in the bystander by the power of the sun. Cantus autum hac virtute opportunitate intentione, conceptus factus quae solaris et agens tum in te, tum in proximum potestate solare. We could see these three factors as contributing to the human part of the equation. Ficino provides detailed instructions in De Vita for the cultivation of solar power through a program of assimilation of solar substances and practicing solar activities. We must remember that in the Neoplatonic chain of correspondences, the sun rules the vital energies of the heart, finding its qualities reflected in both material and spiritual properties from white wine to the god of music, Apollo. Exposure to these qualities will strengthen the spirit of the performer, enabling it to become a channel for the celestial gifts and to pass from the cosmic spirit to the soul and body, like a bait or kindling, esca quadum sive fomes. Note, the cosmic spirit has its origins in Stoic philosophy, which postulates a spiritus mundi flowing through the universe as a channel between the cosmos and material world. In De Vita 3, Ficino calls it the quinta essentia, or fifth element, i.e. aether, a very tenuous body 
as if now it were a soul and not body, and now body and not soul. Ipse vero as corpus tenuissimum quasi non corpus et quasi iam anima. Item quasi non anima et quasi iam corpus. Secondly, timing is everything. No musical ritual will attain perfect efficacy unless the celestial harmony conduces to it from all sides. The moment having been elected for its unique planetary correspondence with the horoscope under consideration. Planets have an objective, material, dimension, and move in real time. Their patterns read symbolically by the divinatory astrologer. Indeed, for Ficino, the imaginative engagement with these readings as poetic metaphors was their primary function. But their visible movements also meant that they could act as markers of time and location for human events thus enabling the manifestation or expression of their meaning on earth. Indeed, Ficino would have read in Iamblichus that the soul could ascend to divine realms without calling in the aid of matter or bringing to bear any other than the observation of the critical time for action. Such was the power of aligning human intention with cosmic symbolism. Now note the selection of suitable astrological times for ritual action is a common theme in De Vita. For example, Ficino quotes Albertus Magnus, Freedom of will is not repressed by the election of an excellent hour. Rather, to scorn to elect an hour for the beginnings of great enterprises is not freedom, but reckless choice. Now, this is an interesting point I was talking with a, a brother the other day about um, when it comes to selecting magical times or even magical directions, the symbolic will of the astral being considered perhaps as overriding the physical locality or time of a thing. But here you see quite clearly Albertus Magnus and Ficino are making a very, very interesting point on the recklessness of simply casting it aside simply because we have the free will to do so if we want. In fact, I think that should be read again. Albertus Magnus quoted by Ficino, Freedom of will is not repressed by the election of an excellent hour. Rather, to scorn to elect an hour for the beginnings of great enterprises is not freedom, but reckless choice. Finally, Ficino devotes a chapter in De Vita to the power of human emotion and desire in astral attraction, in which he attributes to the Arabs. The Arabs say that when we fashion images rightly, our spirit, if it has been intent upon the work and upon the stars with imagination and emotion, is joined together with the very spirit of the world and with the rays of the stars through which the world spirit acts. We are here in the realm of Platonic Eros, the desire aroused in the human soul at the glimpse of our perception of divine beauty. The last great Platonic theurgist, Proclus, 412 to 45 CE, wrote that symbolic images move everything towards the desire of the good, and this wanting produced in things is unquenchable. And it is significant that Ficino translated Proclus's treatise on theurgic magic, De Sacrificio et Magia, concurrently with his De Vita. Indeed, this short work explicitly describes the deification of the human soul that may arise through sympathetic magic and the engagement of the demones.
In his commentary on Plato's Symposium, Ficino too describes the work of magic as the stimulation of the erotic attractions and affinities within the realm of the soul. This intention of the imagination is then no subjective fantasy, but a crucial energetic impulse that propels the arrow of desire to the very center of the target, the cosmic or daemonic intelligence. Divina Source Once these three factors of power, timeliness, and intention are operative, then what is the role and provenance of the oracular voice? Let us turn to an earlier text, Ficino's unpublished Disputatio contra Judicium Astrologorum of 1477, in which he discusses how judgments may be made from horoscopes. He says, Through whatever art future things are questioned, they are foretold more completely from a certain gift of the soul, dos anime, than through judgment. Here, those unlearned in art often judge more truthfully than those who are learned. Ptolemy said about this, Knowledge of the stars comes both from you and from them, as if he were saying that you are truthful in judgment not so much through inspecting the stars as through a certain foreknowledge innate to you. For it is explained that you will follow this knowledge at one time through your diligence, at another you may possess it through the star's natural benevolent action. We note that Ficino here draws the same platonic distinction between human judgment and divine revelation as he does in De Vita. But what he, does he mean by the star's benevolent action? Astrology as Divination As we have seen, for Ficino, prophecy and divination were synonymous being foreknowledge inspired by the Divine Spirit. See Ficino letter on Divine Frenzy, uh, where he says, Plato considers the last kind of frenzy, in which he includes prophecy, to be nothing other than foreknowledge inspired by the Divine Spirit, which we properly call divination and prophecy. In this way, his understanding of astrology as divination was a radical move for his time. In his epitome, or Oniamblichus, he confirms, I am of the opinion that most certain truth in respect to the stars can be had through divine prophecy. Note, for Iamblichus, the goal of inspired divination was the union of the theurgist with the gods, achieved through a transcendence of the subject-object-divide characteristic of syllogistic knowing. Again, in a letter to the Duke of Urbino in 1482, he emphasizes that when astrologers see truthfully, it is not through rational speculation, but through an intuitive grasp of significance, the dos anime. Then, I may truly say, they prophesy. In the key passage that follows, Ficino, drawing on Plotinus, differentiates between the domains of instrumentality and intimation in respect to the function of heavenly bodies. But first, a uh, note prior on prophecy, um, Ficino says in his Theologia Platonica, where predictions of augurs, diviners, soothsayers, astrologers, and mages testify to their mind's divinity. Ficino describes the prediction of future events as possible because prophetic power gathers the fleeting intervals of time into an eternal moment, is itself eternal. Ficino says, Plotinus, 
teaches that almost all phenomena beneath the moon are somehow indicated by the heavens, yet they do not all depend on a heavenly body. For only physical phenomena can arise from a heavenly body, or, rather, from the powers that move the heavens through the instrumentality of a heavenly body. But those phenomena within us which go completely beyond the physical level and come close to our mind and to our divine nature proceed from the divine mind and from those minds in its train. Indeed, he says that the plans and purposes of these minds can often be intimated by celestial configurations and movements as though by glances and nods. But to read clearly these intimations requires above all a wise man, a divine man. Indeed, the human vantage point alone, Ficino says, would be quite inadequate. We would seem to find confirmation here that astrology, when it is understood as divination, can lead to realizations and revelations of an altogether higher order. And this is when the astrologer speaks with an oracular authority as opposed to merely being predictive. This is because the realization of a symbolic meaning is not a function of the rational mind alone, but requires the activation of an innate capacity of the soul to wake another way of seeing. Which is a phrase from Plotinus's Enneads 1, 6.8. And another note, Ficino puts forward the view of Plotinus and Avicenna that events on earth are the result of a mixture of corporeal and incorporeal causes, adding... But since no one is ever able to understand all these things, it is not surprising that no one can hold a definite view about anything of this kind. It's quite a modern point of view, actually. That Ficino readily prophesied using astrology is demonstrated in his letter to Pope Sixtus IV, where he predicts various misfortunes over the coming two years. <laughs> in Platonic terms, these are the eyes of the intellective soul, which has direct access to the divine mind. This innate knowing is itself from the stars, because they themselves are seen as demonic intelligences mirroring their creator and experienced as originating both within and without the human psyche. At the level of oracular insight, human and divine intelligence converge. All Ficino can say is that the daemon is both our intellect and our numinous being. Avicenna on Prophecy James Hankins has drawn attention to the fact that Ficino would have found confirmation that the powers of the imagination could be harnessed to achieve prophetic insight in his reading of the Arabic Neoplatonists, particularly Avicenna, and he suggests that in De Vita, Ficino conceals his debt to Avicenna through deliberately emphasizing the less controversial aspects of magic, those which rely on lower cosmic correspondence, and the influence of the imagination on the spiritus, the intermediary of body and soul. However, Ficino's letter to Federico demonstrates that he understood full well how the imagination could engage with cosmic symbolism and be opened to notic realms. In his On the Soul, De Anima, Avicenna discusses three kinds of prophecy, deriving from the imaginative faculty, the motive faculties, and the intellect. 
When the soul and its imaginative faculties are strong, there may be direct access to the divine realm, and this access may also be achieved by developing a certain kind of willpower or through direct intellectual intuition. Avicenna suggests that powerful intuitive apprehension of spirit may find its expression through the imagination, and that the act of imagining, which is concerned with the combination and separation of sense data, is a cognitive faculty which can turn towards the active intellect, the highest divine intelligence, and convey its properties through images. These images are then necessarily subject to the rational part of the soul for stabilization. This leads to a crucial observation about the nature of symbolic imagination. As Dag Nikolaus Hasse comments, the core idea about imaginative prophethood is that sense data are perceived as if they were real, whereas in fact they are produced by the imaginative faculty. And this helps to explain why the prophetic soul can see, both literally and metaphorically, simultaneously. Ficino, centered in his imaginative faculty, could make seemingly factual or causal observations about planetary influences whilst not taking them literally. These statements, often in response to friends and associates, disguise a more subtle hermeneutic position which the petty ogre, Nefari Gargantuli, astrologers who Ficino condemns in the Disputatio, are not able to attain. A good note here by Hasse on Avicenna. Of relevance here is Henry Corbin's essay, Mundus Imaginalis, 1976, which delineates the ontological reality of the imaginal realm in the metaphysics of the Islamic Illuminist philosophers on the theme of imagination, imaginal perception and its relation with non-sensory perception. What of pure intellectual prophecy? Consider these two passages. Avicenna, thus there might be a person whose soul has been rendered so powerful through extreme purity and intense contact with intellectual principles that he blazes with intuition, i.e. with the ability to receive the inspiration in all matters from the active intellect. This is a kind of prophethood, indeed its highest faculty, and the most appropriate thing is to call this faculty sacred faculty. So that's Avicenna, the Islamic philosopher, and then Ficino. The soul, filled with the intelligence born of distilled black bile, always seeks the center of all subjects and penetrates to their innermost core. It is congruent, moreover, with Mercury and Saturn, of whom the second, the highest of planets, carries the investigator to the highest subjects. From this come original philosophers, especially when their soul, the hereby, called away from external movements and from its own body, is made in the highest degree both a neighbor to the divine and an instrument of the divine. As a result, it is filled from above with divine influences and oracles, and it always predicts new and unaccustomed things and predicts the future. Understood platonically, occult Planetary signatures are instances of archetypal qualities which resonate at all levels in the hierarchy of being, thus contributing to a chain of resemblance. In this way, Saturn, as the furthest planet then known, signifies the realm of the highest, contemplative mind, 
even if on a worldly level it may be associated with delays, hardship, and ill health. So we could say that Ficino, the melancholic, plagued by black bile, plays music to incite an intelligence which will be received as an oracle, yet it is identical to the highest part of his soul, and analogous to Saturn. A note on this from Ficino's letters, yet our Plato placed the highest part of the soul under the authority of Saturn in the realm of mind and divine providence, and the lower part under Jupiter in the realm of life and fate. Plato Timaeus 34b to 36e. All the ingredients of human diligence, then, the concoction of medicines, the technical language of astrology, the skill in music theory and performance practice, the knowledge of sympathies and correspondences in nature and the cosmos, the cultivation of a pure spiritus and focused intent, came together for one underlying purpose, to awake the eye that all have but few use, and engage with the infused light of a higher order of being. This higher imaginative faculty, suggests Leonard George, adds a theophanic dimension to the lower faculty's sense image, as Ficino describes the very act of symbolic contemplative connection as opening perception to the living presences in and beyond the cosmos. Quote, but it is not only those who flee to Jupiter who escape the noxious influence of Saturn, but undergo his propitious influence. It is also those who give themselves over with their whole mind to the divine contemplation signified by Saturn himself. The Chaldeans, Egyptians, and Platonists think that by this method one can avoid the malice of fate, for since they believe the celestials are not empty bodies, but bodies divinely animated, and ruled, moreover, by divine intelligences, no wonder they believe that as many good things as possible come forth from thence for men, goods pertaining not only to our body and spirit, but also overflowing somewhat into our soul, and not into our soul from their bodies, but from their souls." And they believe, too, that the same sort of things and more of them flow out from those intelligences which are above the heavens. It is hardly surprising that Ficino leaves the question of stellar intelligence as ambiguous, if not confused in Devita, but whether living stars, daemons, or spirits, the seminal reasons sown in the cosmos by the world soul are necessarily distinguished by Ficino from divinities wholly separate from matter or intelligences which are above the heavens, as in above quotation, despite the fact that the seminal reasons can be receptacles for the divine ideas themselves. This becomes even more problematic when he concludes in Devita by referring again to Plotinus, this time suggesting that the seminal reasons can be called gods, since they are never cut off from the ideas of the supreme mind, and we are left uncertain as to the distinction between gods and immaterial separate divinities. Ficino is on dangerous territory where he hints that through the ideas, higher gifts too may descend into matter. But I would suggest that this very lack of clarity is a result of the impossibility of accommodating Neoplatonic ritual into a theological framework. As a Platonist, Ficino knew that his astral magic might ultimately unite him with the One, 
through a continuum of sympathia between divine mind and world soul. But as a Christian, he had to maintain a necessary distance between divine and human realms and never suggest that the soul might attain theosis, which is the Greek word for divinization, through pagan practices, a difficult task indeed. Theologia Platonica. Let us take a step further. In Ficino's Theologia Platonica, 1469-74, which is not concerned with magical practice, but with a theoretical defense of the immortality of the soul, he invites yet another interpretation of the Divina Sors in his analysis of the nature of the rational soul. Its highest part, the intellect, which is the soul's head and charioteer, he says, by its very nature imitates the angels and attains what it desires, not in temporal succession, but in an instant. Note here on Vicino's theory of immortality, see Paul Christeller, The Philosophy of Marsilio Ficino, 1943. Michael Allen has pointed out to the extraordinary tension generated by the attempt of the Christian Platonists to accommodate Neoplatonic metaphysics to the Hebreo-Christian notion of an omnipotent, ineffable God, and states that although fruitful, it signaled ultimately the underlying incomparability of the two systems. When the lower part, the normally agitated and preoccupied reason, is quiet, then he muses, What is stopping some angelic process of thought from stealing into our rational powers, although we cannot see where it is subtly coming from? This intellectual power is described as a ray shining down into the soul. So perhaps we can name the oracle not only as a daemon, planetary spirit, or celestial divinity, but also as an angelic intelligence, which is both wholly other and a power of the soul. Where is all this leading? Ficino asks in the Theologia, answering that, in the end, the soul's burning desire for God will lead it to lay aside all its earthly activities and become angelic. Quote, he who commits himself entirely to this inspiration ceases to be a soul and becomes, being reborn from God, a son of God, an angel. Now note, angel in Ficinian metaphysics is equivalent to the Neoplatonic noose. On the relationship between the angel and the soul and the problematic of fitting the Christian angel into the Platonian hypostases, see Alan, the absent angel in Ficino's philosophy. Ficino's idea of the angel was derived from scriptural sources, pseudo-Dionysius's On the Celestial Hierarchy and Medieval Scholasticism. Allen discusses Aquinas's absolute distinction between human and angelic intelligence, but asserts that the whole thrust of Ficino's strictly systematic thought is directed against the fundamental postulate of Christianity. Here we come to what I find the most interesting, crucial point of Dr. Voss's essay, and it's a, a beautiful essay that I very much have enjoyed sharing with you. It will then be able to govern the spheres of the elements with the power of the world soul itself. That is when we become an angel. James Hankins quotes a remarkable passage from Avicenna, which I believe provides an authentic context for Ficino's natural magic of physical and psychic balancing, where imitating the heavens through working with the images of astrology leads to a realization of the heavens in the soul 
of its own divine powers. Quote, but when a person expends all his efforts to purify his rational soul through knowledge, acquires the propensity for contact with the divine effluence, has a balanced temperament, and lacks those appetites that hinder his reception of the divine effluence, then there comes about him, in him a certain similarity to the celestial bodies, and he resembles in his purity the seven mighty ones, that is, the seven celestial spheres. Yeah, so, and if you do not see um, the comparison there, or the pre-idea of alchemical creation and purification through the alembic of the lesser and greater circulations for the connection to the true self from the false self, then, uh, well, think listen again or read this essay yourself. Furthermore, by means of the intellect and will, its two platonic wings, says Ficino, the soul will fly towards God, making progress every day through its desire to achieve union until it is perfected. Quote, Hence, our soul will sometime be able to become, in a sense, all things, and even to become God. <clears throat> yeah. If that uh, doesn't walk the line of heresy, I don't know what does. But this idea is very prevalent today very alive and well and we see it in Ficino 500 years ago coming from even earlier sources these ideas aren't going anywhere and they're worth our study conclusion so finally I would like to suggest that the strategies and techniques of Ficino's astral magic were directed towards the opening of the soul to an inspiration hinted at by the Divina Sors which derived from its own highest part, the angelic intelligence, in order to lead it to a spiritual rebirth in God. But this mystical aim could never be stated as a final goal of natural magic. Situated in a Neoplatonic cosmology, concerned with talismans, sympathetic magic, and musical invocation to pagan deities, Pace Proclus, Transmuting the physical cosmos into symbols as a hermeneutic method of spiritual ascent could only go so far in the eyes of the Church, and Ficino's frustrations in De Vita are barely disguised. It is little wonder that Ficino felt constrained, for, as Henry Corbin puts it, orthodox theology would combat all emanationism. Emanationism is sort of the idea you see within Kabbalah of, of rays or energies creating different spheres and layers of reality, and that's a, a, you know, a big big topic of debate and a big issue for anyone even in practical spirituality. Uh, she has a footnote about that here. Emanationism lies at the heart of Neoplatonic thought, being the never-ending overflowing of divine goodness into creation from the transcendent source via the hypostatic layers of divine mind, world soul, and material world, decreasing in potency of divine essence as it descends. This contrasts with creationism, which posits a divine creator separate from his creation. So emanationism is a lot more akin to naturalism, and uh, creationism posits a supernatural deity in most interpretations. So orthodox theology would combat all emanationism, claim the creative act as a prerogative of God alone, and end the human soul's siloquy with the angel active intelligence. I end with my conviction 
that we cannot extricate Ficino's astral magic from the big picture of his Christian Neoplatonism and his fundamental concerns about the ultimate purpose and destiny of the soul, for to do so would be to distort the integrity of his life's mission to restore ancient wisdom, including the ancient singing of songs to the Orphic lyre, to the world in the service of theology. In one of Ficino's letters to Paul of Middleburg in 1492, he says, This age, like a golden age, has brought back to light those liberal disciplines that were practically extinguished, grammar, poetry, oratory, painting, sculpture, architecture, music, and the ancient singing of songs to the Orphic lyre, and all this in Florence. In this context, Ficino's appeal to the divine oracle is part of a process by which the soul may learn to purify the lens of imagination in order to listen to its own higher voice and begin its self-empowered journey towards divine realization, whatever this may mean in any ultimate sense. As a final word, I would like to leave readers with a problem which has been touched on at several points in this essay. And that is the absolute distinction between theories of higher intelligence, the debates between Platonic and Christian theologies regarding correct definitions of metaphysical terms and how to reconcile them, and the experienced other in ritual practice. Ficino's magical music-making was inspired by a direct communication from somewhere, which, in its instance of apprehension, defied all categorization or definitive naming. The important fact is that it worked. Ficino is then required to grapple with impossible questions of provenance based on conceptual and incompatible metaphysical structures, which can only ever serve as metaphors for something beyond them all. In this respect, the words of Iamblichus faithfully summarize Ficino's dilemma, even whilst pointing to yet another impossible question for the historian. Quote, Indeed, to tell the truth, the contact we have with the divinity is not to be taken as knowledge. Knowledge, after all, is separate from its object by some degree of otherness. But prior to that knowledge, which knows another as being itself other, there is the unitary connection with the gods that is natural and indivisible. And Dr. Voss ends beautifully with Ficino knew not to take the metaphors literally, and herein, I suggest, lies his genius. I've really enjoyed this second go-through of this essay. I recommend Dr. Angela Voss's book on Marsilio Ficino and all of her other work. She's the head of a somewhat marginalized department at the University of Christchurch, Canterbury, called Myth, Cosmology, and the Sacred, offering master's and PhD students a chance to uh, study esotericism and other marginal academic subjects in a beautiful environment of the lovely town of Canterbury and Canterbury Cathedral. When I was presenting to them last March 2019, uh, sitting in the room staring out the back window, I was just staring at the Cathedral of Canterbury where the Archbishop of the Anglican Church Communion is, and it's just a, an amazing experience. And also, she has a, an amazing class of doctoral and uh, and master's students, and there was even a undergraduate there. So, 
pay attention to her work, uh, support it. Um, and if you're looking for a program, I'd highly recommend considering it. It's not that unmanageable under the right circumstances to go to England and do a program like that. Um, and you could, of course, even, you know, challenge to get in without a bachelor's degree if you uh, have no undergraduate subjects that are really relevant to the master's program that you'd be doing with her. So consider these things. Um, and thanks for listening. Definitely check out and Dr. Angela Voss's amazing work. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now. Hermetic Science Enterprises.co.uk